Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans appear. 20,000. Agricultural revolution. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Leslie Chang. This week, we're going back to our archives again to a great episode from Season 3 with James Holland Jones, and he studies emerging infectious diseases. This interview was brought to us by our friend Max McClure, and we really wanted to revisit this story specifically because it's so relevant with all the stuff in the news recently about avian flu showing up in China. And part of Jamie's work is to study how diseases like avian flu or swine flu spread. And he has this really cool way of linking those disease vectors to human interactions with the environment. And he also talks a little bit about how diseases might spread differently with climate change. So let's get to it. Hi, I'm Max McClure. I am sitting here with James Holland-Jones, who is a professor of anthropology at Stanford and a senior fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment. He studies human ecology and the ecology of infectious disease. So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. And uh, just to jump right into it, we brought you on because you do work with emerging infectious diseases. And that name right there is terrifying to a lot of people. Um, So I guess the first thing to ask is, why would new diseases be emerging? And in fact, are we seeing more diseases now that we haven't seen before? Well, it's a great question. Um, New diseases emerge all the time because people come in contact with new reservoirs for disease. Disease organisms are constantly evolving and their ecology is changing. And whenever you have this this sort of evolving baseline with people coming in and changing their exposures, you have the possibility for uh, a spillover of an infectious disease and the emergence of a new infectious disease in people. You know, most infectious diseases of humans start as infectious diseases of animals. An estimate is something like 80% of them. Um, so the question of whether there are more now is, is a hard one to answer because we're slightly biased because we've been paying very careful attention to it for a while uh, and we hadn't really before. Part of that is due to globalization, that we have better surveillance in places where diseases tend to emerge, they're hot spots. 
there is some evidence that the rate of new infections is increasing, but it's weak. So I think the key is that new infectious diseases happen all the time. And it's because it's a dynamic background for both the pathogens and the reservoirs and for people. So, no, I mean, that, that makes sense. And I think definitely it makes sense that there's always going to be this background rate of diseases coming out of, say, some wildlife that we, we've newly come into contact with or that we're coming into contact with more, and, and that's going to spread throughout the human population. But is there anything new in disease ecology that might be facilitating new diseases? The expansion of people into forests and other ecosystems that uh, we have much more sort of penetration into now than we have in the past, much greater population numbers, and a lot of mobility back and forth as well, you know, so into forests and back out of forests. I think that that, that is plausibly something that, that is, well, it's certainly new, uh, and it's plausibly something that could be driving new infectious diseases. And so the new infectious diseases, most of these are actually going to be coming, as you said, from from wildlife. And they either have been coexisting with these viruses or... Yeah. I mean, sometimes they come from wildlife reservoirs. Sometimes they actually come from, from domesticates, you know, livestock and companion animals. But I guess really new diseases tend to come from wildlife. Sure. Yeah. So can you give me an example of how they might cross that, that barrier? Yeah, well, a great example is, uh, and I think it's the canonical example, is HIV. Beatrice Hahn, who's at the University of Pennsylvania and a collaborator of mine, has argued very convincingly that HIV spilled over into a human population through bushmeat hunting. So people go out and they kill chimpanzees. They, they hunt them for meat. Uh, and in the process of butchering them, uh, you know, when, when, when you butcher an animal, you, particularly when you do it with a big, long, you know, machete-like knife, well, sure, yeah. you cut yourself, right? It's, it's very common. You know, if you've ever gone fishing, you know, you, I was just fishing a couple weeks ago with my son, and I probably hooked my hand 15 times over the course of the day. You know, so you, you get these little wounds in your hand when you do these types of activities. And if a chimpanzee is infected with SIV... There's a, a, a nice sort of opportunity for it to, to go through direct blood-to-blood -blood transmission through these wounds on the hands. Uh, and, and we know that the, the closest evolutionary relative of, of HIV-1 is this SIV, a simian immunodeficiency virus, that is specific to chimpanzees. And so the, the story goes that, that uh, humans were hunting chimpanzees, they, they butchered them, there was cross-species transmission, and this has happened probably, you know, dozens of times, hundreds of times, thousands of times, probably pretty regularly, but one time it really stuck. And, you know, the conditions were right for it to emerge as a general infection of, of humans. So hunting is a really is a really key way uh, I think that these diseases can can enter human populations, and my my former uh, grad school office mate Nathan Wolf has started a big project looking at traditional hunters and trying to measure what he calls viral chatter, which is this sort of this background jumping of viruses from wildlife reservoirs into hunters. Huh. So uh, the other thing that seems like it would be highly surprising in the case of, of a traditional activity would be a group of, let's say, somewhat isolated hunters, that they're, at least they're in an, a reasonably isolated area, 
getting an infection and then that becoming a worldwide yeah, absolutely. pandemic. So when you have a new infectious disease of people, two things have to happen. And, and you have to explain, you know, if, if you're doing the epidemiology or the evolutionary biology of these infectious diseases, you have to explain two distinct phenomena. The first is the spillover. Right? There has to be a mechanism by which this, this virus or this bacterium or this fungus or you know, whatever the pathogen is gets from the reservoir into the people. That's the first thing. That's the viral chatter that Nathan is talking about. And most, probably the, the vast majority of infections end up being you know, a primary infection or, or they're, they're immediately cleared by the, the person's immune system or they become just a, a, you know, a primary infection that's eventually cleared or that kills the person and it never, it doesn't go any further than that one event. So the second fundamental feature of a, of a new disease emergence is that there has to be adaptation for within host transmission, right? So that that pathogen has to find a way to get from the person that's infected in the spillover into the next person, right? And it has to do that on average more than once per host if it wants to proliferate. Each new host has to infect at least one other person. Otherwise, it goes to extinction. And so this is why, you know, chances are people have been infected by SIV either from chimpanzees or from colobus monkeys or from, from any, practically any African primate for hundreds, thousands of years. What's different about HIV-1 is that the conditions were set for this to spread into a, a broader population and become a global pandemic. So in the case of, I'm actually not sure how much is specifically known about the spread of, of HIV from theoretical bush hunting practices yeah. to, say, um, 1980s San Francisco, 1970s yeah. San Francisco. Yeah. But is there at least some sort of theory about what what bridged that Absolutely. enormous gap? Absolutely. It's one of the great legacies of colonialism in Africa. Right? So you get European colonial powers in Central Africa... Belgium, France, coming in and, and establishing trade networks. And, and these trade networks linked these villages that were otherwise pretty remote. And when you have these, when you have these, these trade villages uh, that, that start to grow, uh, you know, when, when, when Obi-Wan Kenobi brings Luke Skywalker to see Mos Eisley Spaceport, you know, he says, you'll never see a more wretched hive of scum and villainy, right? That's a trading port. That's what they are. Right? They have these sex ratios where they're, they're three men to every woman. And, you know, if they're three men to every woman and the men have cash, right, because it's, it's a trading port, guess what is happening, you know, with some of these women? You have a network forming in these, along these rivers in, in the Congo Basin of connected communities where there's a lot of sex work going on and there you know there's some pretty degrading conditions that permit a, you know a disease of the immune system to really sort of take hold and spread and then move to the big population centers of of Kinshasa and, and places like that and once you're in Kinshasa right that's a that's an international city you know even in in 1960 it's not far from Kinshasa to Port-au-Prince to New York to LA San Francisco, right? So in theory, it just it could infect one person. It comes to one of these trading ports, and it gets sort of amplified. So basically, we now have sort of two mechanisms, I guess, sort of legacies of colonialism, but also sort of indicators of the modern state of of the globe. We have people impinging on 
areas where they wouldn't normally impinge. Mm -hmm. um, being driven by global demand for timber products absolutely. and non-forest timber products, and then the, the the trade of the guns, absolutely. Yep. And then there's this, again, sort of international commerce aspect. So what other mechanisms might be at play here when you you mean you teach a class on environmental change sort of generally and its mm -hmm. um, implications for disease emergence so what what else might be going on well agricultural intensification particularly livestock intensification of course is a big one and we're, we're just uh, putting together a, a, a new project uh, in Bangladesh and a couple other countries where we're looking at highly pathogenic avian influenza and how how it spills over into human populations and then gets sort of amplified further. So we're looking at bird markets and you know when you have big urban centers where people bring their poultry, right, or their their livestock generally. You know, this is, this forms a big mixing pot. And when you say bird market, this is chickens and yeah, yeah, and chickens and ducks okay. and and I mean, and whatever people are willing to buy. It depends on what city you're in. So so people bring their their livestock into these big marketplaces, and then lots of people come in and they mix around and they pick up chickens and they mix them with ducks, and you know, these become real sort of melting pots for infection. Uh, and you get an you get a, a virus like influenza that can very easily exchange genes and and you you get the you get a situation where you can get some nasty things evolving that have easy access to people and you know something that that my colleague here at Stanford uh, Steve Luby uh, a point that he made to me today that I thought was pretty profound is what chickens are you likely to bring to market you're going to bring the chickens to market that you don't think are going to survive you want to sell them off before they die, right? <laughs> and that there's actually a bit of an incentive to bring diseased birds to market. So there's another mechanism through which you know you get new diseases emerging. So one thing that we haven't touched on yet at all is uh, climate change. Yeah. Um, and I'm this is potentially a more complicated area. <laughs> there's there's a lot of factors at play, but I was wondering if you could maybe explain how that might factor in. Yeah, well, there are a lot of ways. And I think, you know, I think there was an initial inclination in a lot of very well-meaning scientists to sort of get a little chicken little on us uh, and say, oh, my God, climate change is going to, you know, it's going to, everyone's going to have malaria, right? And, and I think that a slightly more uh, measured view of this uh, makes you realize that climate change will be a mixed bag for uh, infectious disease. And on the one hand, you know, these vector-borne diseases such as malaria, such as dengue fever, I'm, I'm almost certain that these are going to, uh, and the thing is that dengue already has, make incursions into American borders, right? We have occasional stable transmission of dengue in, in Key West and down along the, the Rio Grande in, in, te in Texas. And as the global temperatures warm, the suitable habitat for the necessary mosquito vectors may inch, you know, up into higher latitudes. So is, so, it, is it the issue? Is it mosquitoes that the specific mosquitoes for these diseases are replacing? "Quote unquote native." I guess they are not. Sometimes they are. Um, another key is that, like for example, with malaria. It takes two bites to, to transmit malaria from one person to another, right? There's no person-to-person -person transmission. So there has to be a mosquito 
intervening. And if you think about the biology a little bit, that, that mosquito has to suck up this malaria parasite, the plasmodium. That plasmodium has to go through a reproductive cycle in the gut of the mosquito. And that takes, you know, anywhere from seven to 14 days or so, right? And so that mosquito actually has to survive for that week or two. Now, if you're in a cold place, and by cold, I mean, you know, like 18 degrees centigrade, so, you know, 50s or, or low 60s. If, if it's a cold place, that plasmodium takes longer to develop, and the chances that the mosquito will actually survive that long are lower. So that's, a, that's actually a big part of it. There are competent vectors in North America for malaria, but the, uh, you need to have a source of infections, and then you have to have sort of this, this ongoing transmission. For other uh, diseases, it's more a matter of the mosquitoes actually being there. So those are two things that are facilitated by, by a warmer average climate, is that the, the, the development time for something like the plasmodium that causes malaria may be shortened, making it easier for mosquitoes to survive long enough to transmit. And then it may permit you know, the northward advance or the southward advance, if we're talking about the southern hemisphere, of competent vectors. So those are two ways. Now, the good news. You know, it, it, the tropics don't get a lot of good news in in these things, and and here's one area where there may even be a, a slight reduction in transmission when you have more variability at high temperature. What it does is it actually slows down physiological processes, and so it takes longer for the plasmodium to develop. It's more likely the mosquito will die. High variance at low mean temperatures, in other words, in temperate areas biological processes speed up, right? So bad news for northern climes, not bad news for the tropics. All right. So, so it's so complicated. We're inheriting the problem. We, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think it's, it's really important to remember that malaria used to be endemic in Stockholm, right? In Boston, in New York, in Philadelphia. And we eradicated it there. And we did so through environmental management because we certainly didn't have a vaccine against malaria. We still don't, right? And, and we, we managed to eradicate malaria in all these northern cities simply through environmental management. Now, that was the low-hanging fruit. It's, it's easy to eliminate malaria in highly seasonal places where there's no transmission in the winter. And then, you know, we, we kept on eliminating, you know, down, down, down until we hit our southern border. And then it got hard, right? And so that and that's and that's sort of the making of, of malaria as a tropical disease. It didn't used to be a tropical disease. So you've also done research on sort of vaccination strategies. Yeah. Um, and in, in this, to clarify, is this in a situation where you're trying to control an epidemic and you might have a limited amount of Yeah, vaccine. that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So this might be for an emerging disease where you exactly. have a limited amount of serum, say, exactly. or a vaccine. Yep. So can you explain to me, uh, for someone who has very little background in sort of this field, it's obviously a slightly more technical area. Yeah. But um, in terms of how you were, how you're going to sort of deal with this newly interconnected world um, and yeah. rationing out vaccine in this way, how do you control something like that? Well, so... You know, the simple question is, you know, we know we can do pretty well with random, essentially random vaccination if we can vaccinate enough people. But if we can't vaccinate enough people, and if we can't vaccinate enough people to ensure that we won't get an outbreak, 
we'd like to know, is there some way we can be clever about vac vaccinating? Can we find people who have, you know, m more bang for the buck for being vaccinated? For a disease like influenza, for any sort of disease that's transmitted through droplets or through aerosol, for sneezing and, you know, just suspended snot, right? And so, is there anything about the way that people organize themselves that might give us some traction on figuring out a clever vaccination strategy? And it has to do with community structure, the fact that you tend to associate with, you know, a group of people in your community more than you do with people in other communities. And if you know what the community structure is, what you can do is you can go in and you can find those bridges between the different communities. And if you can vaccinate those bridges, then you can keep this thing from spreading beyond, you know, the initial community or the initial few communities. But the, the problem is, and the problem with all these sort of clever networky vaccination ideas is that they all, for the most part, they all assume that you have perfect information about the network, which of course we don't have, right? And so we asked the, what I think is a very practical question, is there any hope of this ever yielding something practical? And so what do epidemiologists do? We call them, you know, the gumshoe epidemiologists who are out pounding the street, knocking on people's doors saying, I'm sorry to tell you this, but, you know, that guy Joe, he was infected with gonorrhea and I think he should come down to the Department of Health or, you know, whatever disease it is. Oh, terrible job. <laughs> it's a really horrible job. Can you imagine? <laughs> So what you can get is uh, reporting data. You can say, well, and this is a standard uh, of, of epidemiological investigation. Uh, you go in and you say, oh, okay, you've been infected. Can you tell me about all the people you've had contact with in the last day or, or you know, whatever the incubation period of the, of the pathogen you have is, last week, last two weeks, whatever it is. Uh, and so we took that as, our, as basically what we could get. And what you end up doing is you do a random walk on, so you, you, you take your index case, your first case, and you say, tell me about your contacts. And then you randomly pick one of those contacts. And then interview that person. You say, now tell me about your contacts. You then randomly pick one of their contacts. So you see you're, you're kind of doing a random walk on the network. So you're now one person removed from your, your first case. And, you, and then you ask this person, hey, do you know this guy that we started our sample with, let's call him Joe again, right? Do you know Joe? And you keep going until you find someone who doesn't know Joe. And if you do this, if you sort of simulate this, you can plot out a, a, a network that has some community structure. And if you, if you follow the logic of this, what you realize is that when you find that person who doesn't know Joe, you've traversed the, the boundary between one community and another. Okay, that person who doesn't know Joe, vaccinate him, <laughs> vaccinate the person who told you about about him while you're at it, vaccinate all their contacts. And you've basically broken the link between those two those two communities. As far as the the current state of of the global ability to deal with an emerging infectious disease, how are we doing? It's bleak. It's bleak. Yeah. Really? <laughs> no, I mean. We've got more people interested in it scientifically than ever, and that's fabulous. We, we have learned an enormous amount about 
emerging infectious diseases, their ecology, their evolution, their epidemiology, just in the last 10 years. I, you know, I don't want to be all doom and gloom um, because that's a real positive right there. What's bad is that, you know, we have a, a persistent decay of global infrastructure. You know, if you want to stay on top of, of infectious diseases, you need to have extensive surveillance. And the, the problem is, what's the product of surveillance? You know, how do we know that it's working? Well, we don't have, we don't have big outbreaks. And think about the, the sort of response to the, the recent H1N1 swine flu pandemic. You know, it's like, well, was it really a pandemic? Yeah, it actually was a pandemic because there was stable transmission all around the world, right? It wasn't like 1918. <laughs> we didn't lose 2% of the world population. And I think it's probably reasonable to say that public health response helped avoid a major, you know, infectious disease disaster. But what the, the sort of public response to this is often, oh, look at those hysterical scientists. They're warning us. They're trying to scare us. Well, are they trying to scare you or are they trying to change your behavior to mitigate, you know, this, this infection? And in my mind, you know, that happened and it worked pretty well. But it, there, you know, it isn't the 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 payoff isn't isn't obvious, and and so worked too well. Well, right, right, right. I mean, there's an irony there, huh? I mean, I think that universities and many many funding agencies, you know, recognize that this is a real problem. You know, a number of great universities have have major sort of centers for for global health, but there's that problem of of infrastructure. For the United States and for every other country, I it it, it worries me. I fret about it. <laughs> so, and because I, I always like to sort of move towards the gloomiest note possible. Mm. Um, if anything's going to go wrong, terribly wrong, for your pick, uh, what, what's your idea? Well, the safe money's on influenza. It's happened before, and it's happened before multiple times. It's a good bet we'll have another, you know, nasty pandemic at some point. But who knows? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is that there, right. this is and, and you know, I think that um, that pandemic infectious disease has a, a, a really deep structural similarity to climate change in terms of the challenges faced by it by uh, for for public policy. And that is that there is just enormous uncertainty huge uncertainty as to when it's going to happen, if it's going to happen, what's going to happen, right? You know, what disease organism is it going to be? Where is it going to come from? How bad will it be? Right? There's huge structural uncertainty. And yet the the sort of disutility of of a really bad pandemic is huge. Right? And so <laughs> and that's not a that's not a happy place to be in if you're a public policy uh, leader, right? You know, you just it's it's and and it's the same thing for climate change. Chances are the worst outcome won't happen, but there's a non-trivial probability that the worst outcome might happen, and the worst outcome is pretty bad, right? Mm -hmm. And and so I think that there's a there's a fundamental similarity between pandemic infection and and climate change in that regard even if they're not related. But, uh, of course, they are. You know, the one is certainly forcing the other. 
Yeah, well, I really just want to thank you again so much for coming in. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Max. Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank our guru, Tom Hayden, as well as Maxine Luckett for all their behind-the-scenes work. Special thanks to Pam Matson, the Dean of Stanford School of Earth Sciences. And a very special thanks to Maserati for letting us use their song, Monoliths. We also want to thank KZSU Stanford 90.1, where most, but not all, of our interviews are recorded. You can find past episodes on our website, anthropocene.stanford.edu, where you can also submit a story idea of your own. Follow our conversation on Twitter, at Gen Anthropocene, or like us on Facebook. I'm Mike Osborne. I'm Miles Traer. And I'm Leslie Chang. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Welcome to our new geologic age.